right. Well, thanks so much, Bill, and for you guys welcoming us. We're so grateful to be here uh, with you all and to be able to share with you uh, this morning. Uh, Bill probably plays it down a bit because it might not be as immediate to him, but our young church literally would not exist without Emmanuel Baptist Church here in Ridgecrest. Without your prayers, your giving over years, it's been longer than been longer than three years, Bill. It's been like five years for our since we moved. Let's see, 2012, whenever that is, six years almost uh, since you guys have been with us, and before that, supporting us when we were on staff with Camps Crusade for Christ. Uh, even the paper I print my messages on weekly, I think, was donated like three years ago from the church. We got like several stacks of them, and I'm still using those to print my messages on. It's been great. Well, one thing I tell our people at our church, and I tell others uh, from greater parts, you know, part of being a Baptist church and part of being uh, part of the Southern Baptist uh, Church network across the country and the world, is you have a lot of people from different places that are coming together for a greater purpose. One thing I tell people outside of California, and especially outside of L.A., uh, one of the beautiful things about our partnership with Emmanuel, with you guys, is that it shows really the transformation that the gospel can have uh, among people. Why do I say that? Well, by and large, people in Studio City, where we are, it's a neighborhood of Los Angeles. It's basically the backside of the Hollywood sign, if you're not familiar with it. If you've ever been to Universal Studios, it's right next door. Universal Studios is one of the studios for which Studio City is named. Very clever, uh, the creative people down there. <laughs> by and large, though... People in Studio City think people in Ridgecrest are crazy. And people in Ridgecrest think people in Studio City are crazy, right? And so it is a countercultural thing. It is a radical thing that has to have some other source, which is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, that would lead people here in Ridgecrest to care about lost, to care about people in Studio City who don't know Jesus, and rarely have any friends who are actually followers of him. And so I celebrate the transformation that you guys have been able to share with us, and I'm so glad we'll be able to share more with you tonight. I hope you can make it tonight. You'll see pictures of our family and stuff if you want to know more and hear stories about what God is doing. But Bill uh, graciously allowed me uh, to fill the uh, pulpit here this morning to give a message to you. It's one that I delivered, uh, I think, about a month, maybe a month and a half ago or so. We've been going through a series on basically the last instructions of the New Testament, sometimes referred to as the end times. And we're looking right now in the book of Revelation uh, at our church right now. But before that, we were looking at what we'll see today, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It is a message about the future second coming of Jesus, when Jesus returns to us. At Anthology, we like to read our church's name, Anthology. I always forget to I say it so much now, I forget. People go, what does that mean? Anthology is a collection, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's a collection of pieces of art, music, film, whatever it might be, brought together as a collection. And we thought that's a great representation of what the church is. People of different stories, different backgrounds, coming together under God's story. So at Anthology, we read the scripture beforehand that we're going to look at. So it'll be on the screen there. Thanks for the, uh, the team in the back putting that up. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. I'm reading from the ESV. You might have a different version, but 1 Thessalonians is about 
you know, probably four-fifths of the way through the Bible. It shouldn't be too hard to find there. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, this is the Apostle Paul's words to the church there. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, who do, others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Woody Allen, a famous guy that many people in my area of the country would know, director, of course, he's gotten himself in some other trouble, but we won't refer to that today if you're familiar with that. But Woody Allen once in an article said he does not like getting old. Anyone else here sympathize with Woody Allen? He said, it's a bad business. It's a confirmation that the anxieties and terrors I've had all my life were accurate. There's no advantage to aging. You don't get wiser. You don't get more mellow. You don't see life in a more glowing way. You have to fight your body decaying, and you have less options. Alan believes there's only one way to handle the horror of mortality, distraction. It was the same when he was 20. You're always walking around with an abyss right under your feet. They can be hoisting a piano on Park Avenue and drop it on your head when you're 20. Alan's solution to worrying about the death is to distract himself with work and play. Everyone, including Woody Allen, knows there's something wrong with death. Whether or not we actually say it. That's why he felt the need to distract himself from it. We all know it's common, even for the least religious people that you may know, or even in Los Angeles, to use euphemisms, sayings like, she's in a better place now. Or, I know they're looking down on us, smiling from somewhere else. Why do we do that? You'll hear that probably at the Oscars or the Emmys when they come up in September. Even the most progressive people say things like that. Why do we do that? Well, it's because we know, everyone knows, no matter who you are, there's something wrong with death. We know deep down we were not made for it. We know it's a bug, not a feature. And the stories our culture tells us often do not give us the comfort we need, nor the comfort that comes from what is actually true. The same was true for ancient people in the first century. The stories their culture told them about death were different, of course, from ours in 2018, but like our day, their stories were a source of discomfort at times. As much as our stories fall short, so did theirs at times. Commenter Charles A. Geshen, I think that's how you say his name, says this about the world the Thessalonians inhabited 
when Paul wrote this letter to them. One does not have to wonder why some confused Christians at Thessalonica would have been very concerned about what lay ahead for their loved ones who died before the triumphal coming of Christ. Plato speaks of the journey of the disembodied soul under the earth in order to pay for every sin over a period of a hundred years. Ten times over for a total of a thousand years. After which period the soul makes a choice regarding in what it will be reborn, whether human or animal. How depressing. Such teaching helps us understand why Paul's message in 1 Thessalonians 4 inspired hope and was to be used as an encouragement. The church in Thessalonica, which Paul helped found, was discouraged and afraid. Their behavior and witness for Jesus was actually not a problem at all. Paul, early in the letter, commends them and says, you guys are doing a great job of loving one another, of loving your community, especially through hardship and persecution. But somewhere along the line, they miss something in the teaching about Jesus' second coming, about his Return For whatever reason, they were afraid that those Christians among them who had already died were going to somehow miss out on the blessings of final salvation that will come when Jesus returns. So they're grieving. Paul writes as a pastor seeking to comfort his people. Today's message is one of hope, something I think we can all use today, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. Here's our key takeaway today. I try to do this for our people every week, try to say, what was that whole thing that guy talked about up there uh, this Sunday? So I put this on our bulletin, but it'll be here uh, on the screen for you uh, today. The key takeaway this morning is the second coming of Jesus Christ means final salvation for all followers of Jesus, dead or alive, and is the source of our comfort through current hardships. The second coming of Jesus Christ means final salvation for all followers of Jesus, dead or alive, and is today the source of our comfort through current hardships and hard times. Let's see what's going on in this church in these powerful verses and how Paul wants this church to grieve, but with hope. Paul starts off in verse 13 saying he understands something is wrong. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed. His logic here is actually very easy to follow through this whole section. First, you can see the Thessalonians are somehow uninformed or misunderstand something that they should understand. From the context of both of these letters to the Thessalonians, there's another one called 2 Thessalonians. Amazing creativity in the scriptures. We know Timothy was sent to this church on behalf of Paul. And it's likely this section is in response to something the church directly asked Timothy about. Immediately after this not being informed, we see what Paul wants to correct. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. So the misinformation is about those who are quote-unquote asleep. Now, we need to understand what this means in context, right? If you're to read this strictly literally, then you would think somehow the Thessalonians are concerned about a large group of the church who's off napping in the corner. They're asleep. Why are they asleep? What's going to happen to them? Not literally what is happening here. What is going on? What does this mean? This is just an ancient euphemism for death. This was a common way for first century writers to refer to the dead as those who have fallen asleep. It probably means nothing beyond that in this 
context. It does not mean necessarily that after a person dies, they go into, go into something called soul sleep, which is kind of an unconscious state. Some people believe what the Bible is referring to. This is simply best to take this as a euphemism for Christians who have passed away. But the next line gets at the core of the problem. He says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The Thessalonians, again, are grieving. Over what? Over those Christians who have died, perhaps even recently, perhaps as a result of some persecution or hardship that the church is going through. Why are they grieving? We'll see more of that later on. But for now, Paul's concern is that they are grieving like those who have no hope. What does that reference? Most likely, he's referring to people who are not Christians by saying those who have no hope. This is a reference for those who do not personally know Jesus and have put their trust in him and his salvation. Notice Paul doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve at all for those who have fallen asleep. As a follower of Jesus, there is nothing wrong with grieving when a loved one who knows Jesus passes away. Some of you who are familiar with our ministry uh, know that just a couple weeks ago, my co-pastor, Steve, his father, uh, passed away. He was a member of our church as well, another uh, financial supporter for years before that, and kind of suddenly uh, passed away, even though he had some continuing health problems over time. He loved Jesus. He had joy about him when he'd walk around. We know people like this, that he'd just light up the room. In fact, I'll give you a little bit more about him later. So, at his funeral last Saturday, was everyone just stoic and sitting in the funeral going, oh, we know where he will be in the future, we are fine right now at this funeral. No, of course not. There were many tears in that funeral service. Many tears by people who loved and have followed Jesus for a long time, including myself. They were grieving greatly the sudden loss of a dear friend, a family member. For us, we were mourning the loss of an influential man in our church. There's nothing wrong with grieving for those who die who know Jesus. However, Paul is telling us here there is a way to grieve that is wrong. It's when you grieve as if you don't know Jesus. It is wrong to grieve as if there is nothing after death for those who put their trust in Christ. It is wrong to grieve as if you'll never see them again if you've put your faith in Jesus. It's wrong to grieve as if this is the end of their existence. It is wrong to grieve as if they will somehow miss out on the glory that is to come one day. And as we'll see, it's wrong to grieve as if Jesus' second coming won't transform everything for the living and the dead. Now Paul continues, he moves on to ground his desires that they not grieve in a wrong way with the foundational truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 14. Why should we not grieve like those who don't have hope? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, the once for all time, work of Jesus Christ by dying on the cross 
and rising from the dead is the foundational reason we should not grieve wrongly. Paul here uses a word for rise, for resurrection, that he doesn't usually use. So most commentators actually believe what he's doing is quoting a very early creed, a very early belief statement that was probably circulated among the first Christians where they were teaching their kids, what do we tell our kids we believe? What do we tell each other? How do we tell new people who've come to follow Jesus what the core of Christianity is? He's probably quoting something like that. So their foundational belief was, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. What makes you a follower of Jesus? We believe Jesus died for our sins to rescue the world. We believe he rose from the dead to guarantee our salvation and he has victory over death. If you're in here and you're not a committed follower of Jesus, that's probably the most basic way that you could describe what would it mean to become a Christian. We believe he died and rose again and that changes everything. That's what Paul is referring to here. That foundational belief, that core belief, Paul says, guarantees the next truth in verse 14. Through Jesus... God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Now we have a direct statement that Paul is using to apply to the grief that the church is experiencing. Through Jesus, because of their faith in him, God will do something for those Christians who have already died. God will bring with Jesus those Christians. Where will he bring them? We'll see in just a minute. But look what Paul is saying. Because of the historic, once-for-all action of Jesus by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, God will not leave behind Christians who die before he returns. Quite the opposite. He will bring them to, Paul says. Paul continues and now makes a very primarily foundational statement to counteract the grief of the Thessalonians. Verse 15 is the main point of the whole section. If you want to know what's the main thing, and verses 16 and 17 follow up on that. So, verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Ooh, word from the Lord. This means, Paul is saying, that this is not something Paul just kind of took up. out. You know, what would be great to say to Thessalonians to help them nice? He says, no, this is something Jesus himself taught to the twelve apostles or taught to Paul himself after Paul came to faith and saw the risen Jesus. What has Jesus taught them to counter the grief about dead Christians that the Thessalonians are experiencing? That those who are still living, when Jesus returns, won't precede those who have died while being Christians. Already, do you see what Paul is saying here? Thessalonians. Don't worry about those of you who've passed away and won't be alive for the second coming when Jesus finally comes back. They won't miss out at all. They will actually precede anyone who is living. Now, the point here is probably not the order. As if you, sh- you should all leave here going, boy, I hope I die before Jesus returns and not be one of the people living when he comes back. That's not the point going on here. He is probably just trying to encourage Jesus will not abandon anyone who is his. Do you love here today? Do you love and trust Jesus? He will come for you. No matter if you pass away or if you're living 
when he comes back. Think about what Paul is doing here. Learn from his example for yourself and as you try to share the faith as a church here. Paul is using truth, doctrinal truth, to correct emotions. Do you see that? Paul is applying to their grief foundational truth meant to change their emotions. What do you do when your emotions are out of control? With grief, with anxiety, with fear, you take them to the truth of God. You take those emotions to the Bible. You submit your emotions to God's Word. You submit your emotions to what God says, not what you feel. Your emotions and my emotions are fallible. God's Word is infallible. Your emotions waver and change, sometimes every five seconds, if you're anything like me. Moment by moment, God's truth never changes, never wavers, is a solid rock. Let's close by seeing the amazing details of how this whole second coming thing is going to look. Paul is not giving an exhaustive description of what it's going to look like when Jesus returns. Okay, He's not even seeking to answer every question here. Some people refer to this section as what's called the rapture. A lot of Christians, even historically, believe it's you know what we think of when we hear that word today is not historically what the church has believed. That's not the main point of this. Paul is trying to assuage, to help their grief. And so he shares some amazing details about what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. What will the second and final coming of Jesus look like? Verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Paul says Jesus himself will come back. The last time we saw in the scriptures the physical body of Jesus was ascending up to heaven in Acts chapter 1, if you're familiar with it. After Jesus died and rose, sticks around for about 40 days, showing up and doing all sorts of fun things, like, Thomas, put your finger in my hole here and right here. Stop you know. And then everyone's like, whoa, he's alive. He's eating fish. This is crazy. And then he eventually goes back up after giving them the Great Commission, says, go tell everyone on, in the world about this and make disciples of me. Last time we saw Jesus, he was ascending to heaven. Now Paul says he's going to be coming back. He will be descending from heaven. Why does Paul say the Lord himself? Wouldn't we think the second coming of Jesus would probably include Jesus? Like he, Of course, he'll. Yeah, why is that a big deal here? Why would Paul make that here? Well, he's painting a picture for something the Thessalonians would have understood, but we have to kind of take from their world to understand it today. He is painting a picture of a royal procession of a king. See what comes with this coming? A cry of command, an archangel shouting out, the trumpet of God sounding. This is a royal procession for a king. The Thessalonians would have been very familiar with this. When an ancient king would come through a town after a victory won in a war, 
a trumpet bearer would come beforehand and blow the trumpet loudly for the whole town to hear. A herald, someone who called out and would cry out with a loud voice, would come before and yell, Here comes the king. He is victorious. All glory and honor is his. And then he'd parade his huge army through the town, so all the townspeople would go, whoa, you know, it's like, there, there's the king that won. I guess we should, you know, give him our praise and honor. Jesus, though, Paul says, doesn't need an army to precede him. This king, when he comes, he himself will lead the procession. God will blow the trumpet. The angel of God will yell out, Here comes King Jesus! And the whole world will know the truth of who God is. This is a real day in the future. We don't know when this day is, but it's coming. Whether later today in the afternoon, hopefully after my message is done and we have enough coffee and donuts and things, and, or 10,000 years from now. But this is a day assured to you and to me, whether you're a Christian here or you're not. And it's meant to give us hope today. Paul concludes by making his pastoral comfort clear as to what happens to those Christians who died before Jesus comes back. At the end of verse 16, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Thessalonians, are you, are you worried about those of your friends and family who've passed away, even possibly from horrible persecution? Don't worry. When King Jesus comes back, and returns in His glory, they won't miss out for one minute. In verse 17, Paul then says, the living Christians will join them. And with the final encouragement he gives, he says, and so, we will always be with the Lord. Will Christians who die before Jesus returns be left out of the good news that we will live forever on a new earth without sin, without war, without racism, without strife, with peace forever, face to face with Jesus. No, they won't at all. Together with those who are alive at Jesus' final return, we will all forever be with Him. Paul then says, Therefore, encourage one another today with these words. In this context, it would be easy to translate encourage as comfort one another with these words. Today. What fear are you facing today? What anxiety are you facing today? What sorrow or grief are you carrying today? What stress are you facing Jesus will return. He will return to take you home with Him. He will bring you into His arms so you will be face to face with Him. He will not leave you. 
press on through your trials and your hardships today. Let that truth comfort you in whatever you face today so you don't give up through what's going on in your life. What worries you about the state of our country today? What concerns do you have about justice in our own country and around the world? Do not despair. Jesus will return one day with a shout of command from an angel that King Jesus is here and He will right all wrongs. The light will expose the darkness in every corner of the world. All will bow a knee to Him. All those who trust Him will be vindicated. Be comforted by that reality today as you seek to speak for the poor, for the oppressed as you cry out and pray for justice to come today. Are there Christian brothers and sisters you know who've died, who you miss desperately? Don't grieve if you'll never see them again. You will be together with them. But more than seeing them again, Paul's encouragement here is, we'll together be with Jesus forever. Comfort yourselves and others with that reality. I said that uh, our co-pastor's father passed away. His name was Edmund. And uh, Steve told me a story of the visitation that happened the night before the funeral service. We weren't able to go because we were volunteering at a movie night for a rec center where our church meets at. But one of the people that spoke at Edmund's visitation was a person named David. David's about, I think, 62 uh, years old or so. Grew up in the L.A. area and was part of the industry, movie and television industry for a long time. David came to faith uh, after being involved with us for about a year and a half, and he came up to me at the end and said, uh, one service, DJ, I think I'd like to be baptized. I said, I like that. Let's talk about this. And as we sat down and I met with him and kind of talked about why he said, it's taken me 62 years to figure out that Jesus is true. and He's the one I want to follow. It's an incredible story. I could share more about that tonight with you. But he went to Edmund's visitation and got up during the sharing time. And he shared something incredible that I think mirrors exactly what this scripture is telling us. He got there and said, Edmund's joy, when I came to anthology, his shining face, every time I'd come in, he'd give me a hug, was one of the things that kept me coming back to anthology so that I could hear about Jesus. And it took me a year and a half of hearing about Jesus till I finally learned to trust him. But it was Edmund's witness, even in his now death, that God was using to show that God is victoriously at work even through the worst of circumstances. That reality is meant to give us hope. And one day, Edmund and David will be back together sharing stories with us about how God used the reality of Jesus' second coming to give them hope, to bring David to faith. And he's doing that in a thousand different ways every time we share with one another and we take steps of faith. So, I close with, if Jesus' return is true, if he's really coming back at some point in 
the future? How should we, like Edmund, tell others about him? If this comfort that we have, if we trust in Jesus, is real and can change our lives today, how should we not tell others about that amazing source of comfort? Think about in people in your life who don't know him. They will see him one day. You in this room may not be a follower of Jesus. We're so glad that you are here. I know Bill would say the same thing. One day you'll meet Jesus. He will descend with a shout and a trumpet. And we will all know that he's the king of the universe. Will you be comforted when he comes? Or the opposite? I hope it's comforted. And today can be the day that changes for you if you trust in him. May the rest of us who are followers of Jesus and have been for a long time or a short time, may we share the good news of the once for all death and resurrection of Jesus with others today so that they would be brought in to the joy and the comfort when Jesus returns. I pray. Father, this, I know at times when I'm wrestling with my son and my daughter just to get ready for the day, and life is crazy, and work has tons of concerns, and things are being texted at me about our church back home, meeting right now, and different problems and issues, it can be so easy to forget this earth-shattering truth that is our assured future. Help us to remember that this is true. Help us to remember that one day Jesus will come back. He will not be hidden. He will finally right all wrongs. He will take care of all injustice. And he will save all those who put their hope in him. Lord, help that truth and that reality encourage us today through whatever we're going through. You know the fears we have. You know the anxieties we have. You know the griefs we have. You know the daily stresses that we have. Remind us of this truth so that we are encouraged to press forward and not give up. So we stick close to you and so that we tell others about that wonderful news. I pray you'd speak to us today and make this true in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.